a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's the fantasy baseball wise guy. He's Gene McCaffrey, and he's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 14th. It's show number six and the first Tuesday Tout edition of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and to throw out the first pitch of our Tuesday Tout special editions, we have a special guest. We'll talk with Gene McCaffrey of WiseGuyBaseball.com about the World Baseball Classic, about why Eric Hosmer's ground ball tendencies could mean added power, about why the ground ball good, fly ball bad gospel for pitchers just ain't so. We'll ask Gene about the popularity game in DFS and Kershaw and another ace as your two top picks and a lot more. Plus, Gene kicks off this year's expert studs and duds. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, Ryan Bloomfield is back on Baseball HQ Radio with a playing time commentary looking at replacement options in Arizona's oft-injured starting outfield. And in our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Houston outfielder Raymond Laureano and Colorado starting pitcher Jeff Hoffman. It's another great Tuesday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have the fantasy baseball wise guy in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. So let's get started, and joining us from Wise Guy Headquarters high in the Colorado Mountains, and by high in Colorado I mean 5,000 feet above sea level, it's Gene McCaffrey. Gene, it doesn't seem like Baseball HQ Radio is really going until we've had the Wise Guy aboard. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here as always, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, So Gene, other than finding out that Israel has a powerhouse baseball team, uh, what are you learning so far, if anything, from the World Baseball Classic? That a lot of the teams have a problem with depth. I noticed that Justin Morneau was starting against Danny Duffy, and I thought that in a real baseball game against you know a real team that had a right-handed hitter, he wouldn't be playing. Um, actually, I'm watching it more than I uh, had watched it in the past, and I find it kind of interesting and and kind of fun to watch. And I mean, it's just great to watch baseball. Period. But um, I get to watch for the some. I have done a few drafts, so I'm just really rooting that my guys don't get hurt. And I noticed you had to pick on the Canadian team as the example of lack of depth, and uh, thank you for not mentioning Ryan Dempster pitching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And Eric Gagne, I think. A little bit of a problem. So you, you mentioned that you've had some drafts. How, uh, how many drafts, how much drafting have you been doing uh, in this uh, early preseason? I've only done two. Uh, I'm last couple of years I've been trying to um, keep – be disciplined and keep it down to uh, to a manageable level. I've only done two uh, slow drafts in uh, NFBC style. In fact, one I started almost a month ago and it's still not finished yet. But um, just gives me a feel for for the marketplace, what's going on, to try something a little uh, a little out of the ordinary because I am in the main event this year. I'm going to be doing a CDM team. I've got Tout Wars and I've got DFS, so I want to keep it to a manageable level. 
Well, between your own drafting so far and just observing the situation, have you seen any trends or anything that looks different this year as far as how values are, how ADPs are going, the pitcher, hitter mix, all this kind of stuff? A little bit. I think people have backed off pitching a little bit in the NFBC leagues where, you know, in, in the recent years, they've been really gung-ho for pitchers. Um, that's backed off a little bit, not that much. Uh, the other thing that's happening a little bit is I think that young players, um, there's always been a kind of rush for for the young players, and I think that that has accelerated um, to the point where even they're starting to pay off to pick old guys, fight ageism. One of the big arguments that's raging in the uh, tout community is how high should Trey Turner be drafted, and uh, I've seen him now sneaking up into the first round of drafts and going for the high $20 in auctions. And uh, I don't know, of course the kid has a lot of talent, and he certainly showed it last year. Good source of stolen bases, uh, which is possibly uh, going to be an area of concern in a lot of drafts. But gosh, Gene, what do you think of taking a guy who's got, what, 200 big league at-bats? Yeah, I think it is a little risky. However, I do think his talent is real. Um, I look at what he did last year, and um, I see his floor as 15 homers and 55 stolen bases and a 290 average, and that's a first-rounder. So um, I can't fault anybody for taking him then. You know, it is risky. I mean, he could, but I don't think he's the type of guy who's going to be exposed. I think he's, um, if anything, I think he's going to get a little better, and... So I really don't fault the people who are who are taking him in the first round, and he's creeping up. He's in the middle of the first round in the NFBC drafts these days, and he's being drafted ahead of Miguel Cabrera mostly in, in situations like that. And that's the example a lot of people point to. Well, you know, Miguel Cabrera is a zero risk uh, first round player, and I think to myself, no, he's not. You know, he's over thirty years old. He's had some problem with his feet, and he's had some other injury issues. Not a lot, but over the years, uh, you usually don't get healthier as you get older. Believe me, I know. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, um, I think Cabrera has fallen to the point. In fact, I took him in my uh, at fifteen in my in my slow draft, and I'm happy to do it. But no player is without risk. No player. Um, you know, there's variants, of course, but um, anybody could break his leg on opening day, God forbid. Or get hit by a bus. Uh, you know, there's things that happen off the field. Remember, I was talking last week with uh, Scott Pianowski about uh, Joel Zamaya, remember? A, a potential closer, and everybody was real excited about him, and then he dropped a crate on his foot or something while he was packing up his house to get away from a wildfire in the mountains outside of L.A. I mean, anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, in my keeper league in the XFL that we do in uh, at uh, First Pitch Arizona, um, I had an agonizing decision. Do I want to keep your Dino Ventura? You know, I, mean, I hate to say it, but that decision was made for me you know, after I kept them. The real world intervenes sometimes, and uh, anybody who thinks there's no risk in this game is not paying really close attention. I mean... Personally, I think Mike Trout is as close as it gets to zero risk. Jose Altuve is pretty close to that as well. But especially guys who run, you know, all you have to do is take a take a, a knee in the head like Morno did. You mentioned Justin Morno a few years ago, popping up from stealing second base. And a guy knees him in the head on the way by, and all of a sudden he's two years missed with uh, concussions. Anything can happen out there. That's right. I mean, and we have established that staying healthy is a skill, but it's hardly... You know, no one's invulnerable. Anything can happen. So, yes, everyone has risk. It's a question of weighing the, as usual, the risk against the reward.
If there's one mistake, Gene, that you think too many fantasy drafters consistently make, what do you think it is? Well, I still think it's front-running. Or to be more sophisticated, recency bias. I still think people assume that the way things are or the way things were last year is the way they're going to be this year. And even after all these years of irrefutable evidence that things change all the time and there's fluctuation, and uh, I think that if there's anything to take advantage of this year is to see if you can distinguish between a player's real ability and what he did last year and see what you, what can be what profit you can get out of that knowledge. I agree, and one of the things I like looking at is when a, when a player seems to establish a new level of skill or a, a new level of performance on the field, I like to look back and see if there was a trend towards it or whether it looks like an outlier. And I'm very suspicious of something where a fellow has a fairly poor strikeout rate, fairly poor strikeout rate, and all of a sudden a really good strikeout rate or fairly poor hard hit ball for two years in a row. And then all of a sudden a big jump into something better. I like to see some evidence of growth towards that kind of situation. And similarly, I'm more concerned about a player who's had a steady decline rather than a sudden decline as far as whether it sets a new level. Yeah, I agree. Uh, also, with uh, especially with relief pitchers who showed marked control improvement, um, is it real? I mean, these guys are pitching 50 innings in some cases, and you know, you can, you can have a much better control rate in a particular year, and it's really kind of an illusion. I call it Billy Koch syndrome because he was the original guy that I noticed it with. Um, Cam Bedrosian is a guy like that this year. I mean, he definitely came a long way last year with his control, and I think maybe a little bit too far. Um, there'll be some regression there this year. In the same vein, Gene, what's the best piece of advice you ever got about playing fantasy baseball, and who gave it to you? I gave it to myself, and it is do the work. Do the research. Go through all the players. Do it manually, because you're going to find, if you do it yourself, you're going to find out things that you didn't know. You're going to find out things that nobody else knew because you're not reading somebody else's material. I know it's heresy since I'm a tout, but you know, don't listen to the touts. Do it yourself. You're going to find out things that nobody else knows, and you'll be able to act on it. And plus, it's fun to me, I mean, I, and I assume to everyone who plays these games, that you know, digging and doing the research is is great. You know, I, I love this time of year and I bet you do too, right? Oh, for sure. And uh, I like trying to think about the, the numbers and the stats in new ways, because when I do that, every so often a name pops out of the list that uh, has a lot to recommend him. Uh, right now I'm uh, working on a Master Notes. Uh, we'll be talking about it uh, a little later on this week in, in Master Notes on Friday. I had this idea, and it stemmed from something we used to talk about, Gene, uh, which was why do we have all these different denominators for the various stats we use? Uh, in, in the case of pitchers, we look at strikeout percents of batters face, but but we look at uh, the batting average on balls in play, and we look at hard hit balls as a percentage of balls in play rather than of how many batter pitcher confrontations ended up in a hard hit ball. And so I standardized all the metrics to this one uh, batter's faced or plate appearances and then started looking at which players seem to be doing well and which players seem to be doing poorly. And 
doing that starts to to show you that there are some players out there poised for a lot better things than they're currently able to do and those are the kind of names that really intrigue me and I'm going to put them you know in the in my back pocket for draft because a lot of them I'm, of course the Mike Trouts and Altuves are always near the top but there's lots of names that aren't Mike Trout and Jose Altuve who are showing those kind of of positive outcomes yeah I think that's a really good idea um, against plate appearances is well, you know, it's something that tends to get lost in the shuffle, and also in the in the loss of, uh, for lack of a better word, the momentum of new stats. And you know, a new stat comes along, and people are excited about it. And sure, it tells you something, but you know, let's step back. And the thing—it's always about perspective. What's the best way to look at the the whole picture? And yeah, I I think that's a really good idea. I look forward to reading that, stealing some of your guys. <laughs> the the other thing that I I noticed and I I'd like your opinion on it is I've always thought that the uh, the metric of home run per fly balls for pitchers and for hitters seems weird because so many fly balls have absolutely zero chance of getting out of the park anything that's hit soft or anything that's hit medium and especially those are that are popped up in the infield and so I, I redid all the home run per fly ball rates to just say, let's see what the home run per hard hit fly balls is for each of these pitchers and each of these hitters. And it turns out that it does make a, a pretty big difference. The uh, The league percentage or the game-wide percentage is around 33%. About a third of hard hit fly balls end up being home runs. And so if I see a guy who's down around 20%, I think this is a much better indicator of bad luck in that regard than it is to say he's got a, a 7% overall home run per fly ball rate because I want to know how many of those fly balls had no chance to begin with. We had talked about this in previous years with pitchers, um, especially the fly ball pitchers who were who had low home run to fly ball rates. And um, I think that, I don't know if it was you or if it was me, but we um, we definitely decided that ignoring infield pop-ups was was wrong because that's you know that's a skill that pitchers definitely have and can sustain from year to year um, at least up to a certain point and it, it explains things you know when if a guy's got a seven percent home run to fly ball ratio maybe that's a little low this year but if he's getting a lot of infield pop-ups it's not going to be over 10 in the next year jared weaver was the guy when you and i first started talking about it that you had identified as uh, I remember, I remember almost word for word what you said to me. They say it's not a skill, but he's done it for seven years in a row. At some point, we have to start saying maybe this is a skill. And there are there are other pitchers who are like that, and they're buried to a certain extent because they don't have the the lofty strikeout rates, which of course we like strikeout rates. But when I th- when I thought about it, I thought. What is the difference between an infield fly and a strikeout insofar as the pitcher's success is concerned? And the answer is nothing. They're equal outs. What I've started doing in all, in my own stat preparation is I break out infield fly balls and outfield fly balls as two completely separate categories. I don't think infield fly balls are fly balls. They're just a different thing entirely. Yeah, that's a good point. I say, yeah, let's do that. Let's you know. Let's make that a, a metric. You know, fly balls. Let's split them in two. And in fact, if you add together some pitchers' infield fly balls and add them to their strikeouts, you get some interesting guys. And the poster child these days is Marco Estrada of Toronto. Nobody's idea of an overpowering pitcher, but consistently seven percent of his batters pop up. 
Yeah, and people say, well, he has no skills uh, to back up his consistently at least decent numbers. But, yes, he does have a skill, and that is a skill. We've also talked about the fact that most major league hitters can't hit the ball up in the strike zone, and he's, he exploits that beautifully. Fastball up, change up, down. Yeah, there's there's other guys like that, and that, I think that's where the you mentioned it's not only where the competitive advantage lies, but it's also where a lot of the fun lies when you identify something like that and you can feel good about yourself and you draft a pitcher who's got a hidden skill or a skill that's hidden from everybody else at the table that you found out. I think that's super interesting. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. It's Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. And Gene, uh, you didn't publish a Wise Guy Baseball this year in part because you were tired of everybody knowing who you were going to draft, but you did distribute a, fall, a small number of player commentaries and you shared it with me and I'd like to ask you about some of the comments you made about the players and about the game. And the first thing that caught my eye was uh, a comment you made early on. It's it's very hard to post good decimals when a starting pitcher averages just over five innings. Why is a low inning starter not capable of posting those good decimal numbers? It doesn't seem like it should matter. Well, because you can't you have no opportunity to to make up for the damage that you've uh, for the base runners and the runs that you've allowed early. Um, even bad pitchers throw more scoreless innings than than uh, innings in which they allow runs. Um, so that's one reason, and it's a big reason. And the other reason is for ERA is that when you leave the game in the sixth inning with two guys on base, those runs that are allowed count against you, and that also makes it extra difficult. You had a discussion of Eric Hosmer, and Eric Hosmer's a bone of contention in the tout community this year. He reached uh, 25 home runs, you said, with a 21% home run per fly ball rate, speaking of which, when his previous high was 15%. And this is what got me, Gene. You said, Hosmer's exactly the kind of hitter who can sustain that level or near it because he's such a big ground ball hitter. This seemed counterintuitive to me. More home runs because he's a ground ball hitter? Yeah, well, what he's doing is when he hits a fly ball... He's trying to hit a home run, and I don't think it's unusual at all that he can succeed one out of five times when he's trying to do something. Um, I think the same thing is true of Christian Yelich, another extreme ground ball hitter who's went up this year. And what you were talking about before, the 15%, which had been his previous high, was the year before. So I think this is a skill. You can only do it if you're a really good hitter, and I think it's true of both Hosmer and Yelich that they are really good, pure hitters in the batting average sense of the term. And so when you see something like that, I'm much more inclined to think it's real than that it's going to regress. If it regresses, it's not going to regress by much. Continuing on from a topic we were discussing around the edges a few minutes ago, you said, and I quote, I still see analysts preaching the ground ball good, fly ball bad gospel for pitchers. It ain't so. I thought the issue was settled, but no, and so here we go. What's the story here? Well, fly ball pitchers can be really good pitchers. Max Scherzer is an extreme fly baller. Madison Bumgarner, uh, Kenley Jansen. I mean, these are among the best pitchers in the game, and they're extreme fly ball pitchers, not just fly ball pitchers. So, I mean, as my research over a period of 10 years has indicated, ground ball pitchers uh, give up, have better ERAs, and they usually get a few more wins, but that was not true last year. But fly ball pitchers have lower whips and get more strikeouts. And this is the way it's been, and it's the way I'm assuming it's going to continue to be. So, I mean, obviously you look for circumstances. You don't want a fly ball pitcher in Coors Field. Um, You want a guy who's got fast outfielders and a big outfield if possible. But fly ball, uh, extreme pitchers either way 
tend to be the effective pitchers. And so if people are going to listen to fly ball bad advice, that's an advantage for us. But the pitchers you named uh, who are extreme fly ballers are also very high strikeout rate pitchers. What about a what about a fly ball pitcher with a modest strikeout rate? Is that any more of a concern beyond the fact that all pitchers with modest strikeout rates are a concern? Yes, definitely. And this is true on the other end. If you get a ground ball pitcher who does strike out a lot of guys, he's golden. He's a guy that you want to you want you want him high on your list. And the bad side of that would be if you see a ground ball pitcher who allows a, hot, a lot of home runs, that's a warning sign. A fly ball pitcher who also allows a lot of hits, that's a warning sign. Um, but if you take them in the, in the general profile of either one, um, to be an extreme fly ball pitcher, if you control the strike zone, is an asset. And it's something that, it's something that you want in a pitcher, not something that you're uh, looking to throw away. The issue of how to value and play for Clayton Kershaw has been on the minds of a lot of touts this year, especially after his injury last year. You said the argument for taking Kershaw first or paying the most money is that he has the most impact. I think I agree with you, but maybe explain your reasoning in a little more detail. Well, I mean, if you look it up by the, um, if you do the arithmetic by the, the fact that we have nine pitchers, two of whom are usually closers, the starting pitcher has a far more impact on the standings than any hitter does. Um, there's 14 hitters, there's nine pitchers, seven starting pitchers. So right there, and when you do the when you do the arithmetic, it's not quite double, but it's it's a lot. Um, Kershaw last year, I mean, as, as I said in in my little piece about him, um, nobody lost because they took him in the first round. You know, his ERA wasn't 2.69; it was 1.69, and his ERA was 0.72. Um, you can fill in his missing starts with sub-mediocrity and do very well in that lineup slot. So, uh, you know, to me, it, 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 it's a little bit true, of course. He, you know, he does have some injury risk, yes, definitely. But it's less than people think. I like that reasoning where you, if you just do the arithmetic, the amount of impact he has on those ratio categories is, is really uh, an overpowering argument in favor of any really top-flight pitcher. And I wonder, though, can't we make the same arithmetical argument to justify paying top dollar for a really dominant hitter? I did the same uh, exercise on Mike Trout. Uh, BaseballHQ.com says to expect a 419 on base percentage in about 650 plate appearances. So if he gets hurt and loses 200 plate appearances and his owner can only replace him with like a 300 or 305 on base guy for those missing 200 plate appearances, that roster slot, and I think that's what you're getting at, is you got to think about the slot production rather than the player production. That roster slot still has an overall on-base percentage of 385, which is better than anybody else in baseball. So can we use the same reasoning to, to justify paying top dollar for Mike Trout, maybe even more than people think. Definitely. No question about it. And, and it especially helps um, when you, uh, if you're in your draft and you have an injury-prone player like that, um, back them up. You know, as long as you're aware of it, you can back them up and do better than 305 with the on-base percentage and therefore do better. Um, it helps with outfielders because the, you know, the talent pool of at least decent players in mixed leagues is... Uh, is great. Um, now, I'm less inclined to go with that reasoning for Kershaw or Trout in an only league where you're 
where the replacement level is it tends to be lower and you're liable to get a 270 on base percentage with the guy who's replacing them but in a mixed league where there where there's a reasonable level of talent replacement level um yes you can definitely do it with any with any player I did my Master Notes commentary and Master Notes had BaseballHQ.com last week about stars and scrubs versus spread the risk because it, it happened to be a topic I heard somebody talking about on Sirius XM uh, Fantasy Sports Radio and uh, it got me thinking. And so um, following your advice, I tested it. I tested the proposition and I randomly drafted uh, some teams using both strategies and it turned out there's not that much difference really and so the the advantage of of the spread the risk strategy avoid the top guys in a, especially in a in an only league is if you invest $45 or $48 in uh Mike Trout or Jose Altuve he went for $45 in the Labor AL only draft if Mike Trout misses half a season, your your season's over for all intents and purposes because you simply can't replace him in an only league to the same extent you can in a mixed league where, of course, you're not getting another Mike Trout, but you are getting something. And if you're in an only league, you're getting nothing. The team that wins offense is the team that has the most at-bats. Um, and so I think that that's spread the risk lends itself to an only strategy, whereas Stars and Scrubs is better for, for mixed leagues. But even that is not, it's not a universal thing. I mean, if everybody is going for spread the risk, then obviously the top guys are going to cost less. So, I mean, you have to, you have to think on your feet and, and, and go on the fly to see what's better in any particular auction or draft. And of course, in, in straight drafts, you, you have to play spread the risk because everybody has the same access to the same players in a roughly declining order of skill and ability and production. Do you Have you ever played in a league, or do you think it would be a good idea to have a league that encouraged trading of those draft slots so that if you if you wanted to play spread the risk, you could go to the to a, another competitor who is a more stars and scrubsy kind of guy and say, listen, I'll give you my first and second round picks and my second to last and last round picks for in exchange for a bunch of picks more in the middle of the draft and then see if you could do stars and scrubs versus spread the risk that way. Have you ever played it, or do you think it's a good idea? I've never done it. Um, I wouldn't do it in a mixed league. I would definitely do it in, a, in an only league. Only, the unfortunate thing is only leagues tend to be auctions rather than drafts. I wouldn't mind being able to trade players for, if you want to get really complicated, in the middle of an auction, you, you get a star, and then you trade them for, you know, for that money later on in the draft. If you see that there's players, you know, a lot of um, mid-level players still available and you want to switch your strategy midstream, um, it's pretty complex, though. I, I don't know how you'd work, make it work in, in the real world. I actually played in a league a long time ago where you could do that. There was all kinds of trading going on uh, we, at, at every break. You know, we had a 50-minute auction period and then a 10-minute break. A lot of us smoked back in those days, so you had to have a 10-minute break every hour to go and satisfy that particular need. Don't I know. <laughs> and uh, during that 10-minute break, gosh, you were standing outside uh, having a having a quick smoke, and uh, the trade talk was going fast and furious because some guys have buyer's remorse, you know, they or they were caught price enforcing and they didn't like the guy because he didn't fit their plan. And so there was tons of trading going on, including trading a guy that you bought for $35 and getting back $33 uh, and being happy with it because you thought it was a, just a bad trade and you're willing to surrender the two bucks. Yeah, I think it's a great idea if you can, you know, if you get everybody in your league to go along with it. I think it, it adds a, a 
lot of fun to it, especially for guys who have been in these long, you know, these 20-plus year leagues um, where things tend to fall into predictable patterns. It really throws a monkey wrench into it, and it's probably worth experimenting with. Monkey wrenches are good. I like monkey wrenches. You also addressed the concept we were talking about, Clayton Kershaw. Of course, Kershaw in the first round is now starting to become pretty normal in a lot of drafts, but you addressed the concept of not only taking Kershaw in the first round, but a second top starter very early as well. This seems gimmicky, Gene. How do you recover from being so far behind in hitting if your first couple of pitchers are top picks or maybe your first hitter falls to you in the third round? Well, I mean, the idea is that you're so far ahead in pitching that you can do it. I would say, um, first of all, there are going to be winning hitters in every at every level, um, players who exceed their expectations. Second of all, I'm saying that I have seen it work. I mean, we, you know, a lot of the listeners know Brian Feldman, who's um, a really good player, and he's the auctioneer at Tout Wars. A couple of years ago, I saw him in Arizona. He drafted pitchers with his first four picks, and he won the league, nosing out my friend John Mena on the last day. I mean, his thinking was, I am going to dominate the pitching categories, finish in the middle of the pack and offense, and thereby win the league, and he did it. Um, I did something myself that not quite as extreme a few years before that, in which I had three starting pitchers out of my first five picks, and I also won that league, and it was a very competitive league full of really sharp players. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it is gimmicky. I think it can be done. It's risky, though. Um, you do put yourself behind the eight ball, um, but if I was in a league where I'm playing, say, for overall money, like the NFBC, I think it's worth considering at least. Uh, and again, uh, maybe in, in mixed leagues, it may even make more sense. I mean, in only leagues and mixed leagues, but in only leagues in particular, it addresses that risk, uh, injury risk, because the the way that the percentages split, there's even in only leagues, there's a lot more free agent pitchers in the pool after the draft is over than there are hitters. And so maybe uh, you, you might think to yourself, gosh, uh, I'll, I'll throw some money at these uh, maybe slightly more risky pitchers because I know if one of them breaks down for part or all of the season, I stand a better chance of finding it at least useful replacement in the pool. If I lose an outfielder, I'm dead meat. Um, also, I think it lends itself to a draft strategy rather than an auction because you can only go contrarian so far in an auction league before your offense really starts to hurt. In, in a draft where everyone is it's equal opportunity cost, so to speak, um, it's a little bit easier to do it. I don't think that you can win a league going any lower than, say, 60-40 split with hitting and pitching. Um, I, I think you probably should, um, since the value is there, uh, do something more like 65-35. But, I mean, that's, you know, it's really a minor adjustment in the grand scheme of things. You said the line you draw for closers, the closers you're willing to roster, is 95 losses for the team. Any more than that, you say, and the chance for 40 saves is rendered remote. Why 95 losses? There comes a point where there just won't be enough save opportunities, and that's roughly what it is. Um, I think it's because you just have long droughts. If you have, a say, a pitcher on a 100-loss team, during the season you're virtually guaranteed to have something like a six-week stretch where your closer gets four save opportunities. And because he's not sharp, he's likely to blow one of them. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be six weeks and four ops. It can be a month and three ops. But something like that is going to happen. And, um, and that's why, you know, a lot of people like to take that pitcher as a third closer, you know, say the, the closer on the Twins, let's say, who were the worst team in baseball last year, 
Whereas I think that that is exactly the kind of guy that you do not want for your third guy because you put him in, you're using him part-time, you put him in for a week and he doesn't pitch at all. You know, or he comes in to get an inning of work in a 10-1 game. Um, so that I mean, that can't possibly do you any good, can only do you harm. I like I don't like it when my guys can only hurt me by using them. If so, if you're using a three closer strategy, and some people do that, trying to dominate the saves category, you're saying Brandon Kinsler can't be a part of it. You have to get three good closers. Well, I think you're better off. You're going to be fishing for the third guy. You're better off going with the guy who's second in line on a better team, or or even third in line if if he's got a, a clearer path. You know, like for instance, the the guy on the Mets this year who's third, who I think is Robles. You know, if we're assuming that Familia is going to be suspended, he's a guy, you know, Robles is a guy to target in the reserve rounds because he cause he's closer to the to the role than, uh, than a, any other third guy at this stage of the game. A few years ago, I did some research to figure out exactly what the relationship is between uh, a winning team versus a, a less successful team and saves because there was this theory that the uh, less successful team played more close games, therefore had more save opportunities. Turned out not to be the case. Basically, half of all wins are saved, and that means if you've got a 90-win team, you're going to get 45 save opportunities, and if you've got a 67-win team, you're going to be down around 33, and it's just pretty much as simple as that. There's variation within that, but uh, I think you've, you've hit on something there that if you get a bad team, there's just going to be fewer wins, and fewer wins means fewer saves. Right, but not in the middle levels. You know, they have to be really bad, or on the other end, really good, um, for instance, the Cubs last year had very few save opportunities. Um, it probably won't repeat quite that way again, but if you're winning a lot of games by more than three runs, um, it can happen. Um, I remember Mariano Rivera one year in more, when one of the great Yankee teams, he only had 30 saves. And it was absolutely no in, you know, reflection on his ability, which is he didn't get the opportunities in that particular year. If it happens... Um, I'd bet against it happening the second year in a row, for instance. So, you know, as long as Wade Davis is healthy, I think he's a good pick this year right up there with um, with the top closers. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. And, Gene, uh, you talked about Francisco Lindor going as a foundation player, very high in drafts, uh, big dollars in auctions, but he's not. You say a great player, a good roto asset, but not a stud. Explain what you mean by foundation player or stud or both, and why Lindor isn't one. Well, you know, as I say, he is a great player. I'm not knocking him at all. I'd love to have him on my team, but when you look at his production in the in the five categories, he's he's going to give you great batting average. He's going to give you great runs, and he's going to be eh, everywhere else. Um, that player to me is not a foundation. A foundation player to me is somebody who's going to give you four really good categories minimum and five if, if possible. Going on to DFS, I know you're a fan uh, of the daily fantasy game and you said the popularity game is an issue in DFS or rather it's not an issue but it should be. First, what do you mean by the popularity game? Well, the whole, you know, the whole pursuit of players who aren't going to be popular on that particular night. The thinking that in order to win you need to um have some players who who go off who nobody else owns. To me, to win, you have to get the most points. And no matter what you do, you're still going to wind up with a unique team. Sure, if you if it's a close decision between two guys, 
sure, own the guy who you think is going to be less popular. But even there, I'm constantly surprised by how popular some players are that I think shouldn't be, how unpopular guys who are should be, or two guys who have the same popularity who I consider to be miles apart. Maybe there's an algorithm to determine. Um, I know that they have algorithms for everything, but from what I've seen of them, they're pretty ham-handed and... You know, I think that with your own intuition, you can do just as well as an algorithm. It's not really intuition. It's really, you know, considered appreciation of the conflicting percentages. How about that? And Gene, you also use some basic arithmetic to explain that every player in a 50,000-player DFS league will have a unique team, even though it seems uh, intuitively that some of them must be duplicated. But in fact, the popularity of any one of them is actually irrelevant. How does that work? Well, just do the arithmetic, you know, 40% times 40% times 60% times 20%. And by the time you get down to your 10-player team, you're going to be into the point zero 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 zeros. So, as I say, unless you, if you use any reasonable system to determine what players you want that day, it doesn't matter. Go for the guys who have the most points because... That, to me, anyway, is the best way to win. And you don't, have, you don't need to worry at all about whether other people own him because even if he's popular, you just beat him somewhere else. I thought that was the real insight. The entire roster is very, extremely, extremely unlikely to match anybody else player for player across the board. And, uh, and if, uh, I guess if that did happen and you had to split the $100,000 prize, you just have to suck it up and live with it <laughs> or, or um, just except that once in a, a lifetime, lightning's going to strike. I actually repeated the exercise on a spreadsheet with various ownership percentages, and it turns out that if every one of the players you drafted in a given night was only 40% owned, you would have a unique team or a roster the same as one other player unless there was some kind of weird um, confluence of events out there. But at 40% ownership per player, the odds fall down to less than 1% that there's going to be a, a duplicated team. Right, and in the big contests, where, where, which is where they have the big prizes, the Friday nights and the Tuesday nights and the Sunday afternoons, nobody has anywhere close to every player being 40% owned. There were just too many good choices to, to um, you, you might see one or two players who were 40% owned, and, and a whole lot of really good bets were less than 10% owned, and then it's automatic, you're unique. Exactly right, and uh, the forty percent guy is pr very likely owned because he makes an excellent play, good salary or good expectation or whatever the case is. And to say, well, he's going to be forty percent owned, I'm not going to draft him because I'm afraid that I'm going to match up with somebody, turns out to be just not supported by probabilities and by game strategy. Right. I mean, if you have a good reason to go against the forty percent owned guy, by all means, go ahead and do it. But if the guy is really that good a play, beat him somewhere else. There's nine other slots. What about a smaller league like uh, we had our Tout Wars Daily Fantasy, which I only mentioned because I won it? That's a that's a fairly small league with very limited players. Is uh, is the playing against the odds more or less important in a small league with with fewer owners? It certainly didn't matter to me. I mean, what I was doing in those games is basically entering the same team that I was entering in another bigger contest that night. Um, Friday nights are tough. And we did our contest on Friday night. And, for, you know, there's 15 games going on. The, the permutations are you know, in the billions. Um, so congratulations. 
Oh, it was fun. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. And there's a lot of strategy. And I don't know if, uh, if there are opportunities like this in the DFS industry for just, uh, everyday players, but the idea that we, we participated in four, uh, a season long thing, but it, we went in four week chunks and, and then they, they aggregated how well you did in four weeks. And if you did well enough, then you got a golden ticket to the, to the big one game final. It's a really interesting way to approach DFS because it combined some game theory while you're doing it, especially, um, trying to protect yourself from risk. Uh, if you were in a fairly top position during any four week segment versus in, uh, embracing risk more, if you needed to catch some lightning in a bottle. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if I, as I said before, if I have a good reason to go against anyone I think is, who's going to be popular, um, that's what I'm going to do. Um, there was a, an example of that in the in the in the night that we uh, the first pitch Arizona on our DFS seminar. We did a thing where we took one night and went through our whole teams and why we did it. And there was a very popular pitcher that night who was Luke Weaver, who. Um, I think it was 42% owned, and I did not own him because I, he was pitching against uh, on the road against the Giants. You know, superficially he looked good. He's on the, you know, he's pitching against uh, the Giants. Well, I think the Giants are a really good team, but he was in, you know, S Candlestick or whatever they call it. And but the Giants are a really good team against right-handed pitching, and. I knew that Weaver wasn't going to pitch deep in the game anyway, which is a very important thing in DFS. I mean, you, innings pitched in strikeouts. You can't get a strikeout unless you've got an out. And if you're going to pitch five and a third innings, I, I don't really want you. Um, that particular thing worked out. It's just that my hitters didn't work out that night. And just to be clear, you, did, you didn't avoid Luke Weaver because you thought he might be 40% owned. Or because you thought he might be ten percent owned or ninety percent owned, you avoided Luke Weaver because you thought he was a bad play that night. That's right, and I, I also kind of knew that he was going to be popular, um, but because Scherzer was going that night, who was very expensive and was a great bet, so you can't have two really expensive pitchers on most nights, especially if there's a Coors Field game, which there was. Um, so he, he, it was obvious that Weaver was going to. I didn't know he was going to be forty-two percent owned, but. The, he was pretty sure to be thirty percent on. Put it that way. But if you'd had if you had thought he was a good bet, you'd have taken him, despite the fact you thought he was going to be thirty thirty five percent on. Yeah. Yes. You said uh, in your uh, in your document, uh, I've been predicting the rise of the multiple inning reliever for many years, and I think it's upon us, Gene. This is something you and I have talked about a lot. Why do you think that maybe it's finally coming true now? Well, because they did it in the World Series and it worked. And baseball is a game of imitation, um, and it makes so much sense to do it. Um, so I think that now that there's been some validation, the guys in the broadcast booth were generally approving of it. So I think that we're going to see more of it this year. I hope so anyway, for the sake of the game. If you're right that we're going to see more multi-inning relievers, the chances are that guys like Andrew Miller in Cleveland and Dellen Batances in New York are going to have more innings in a year, which is going to be very useful for their teams. I believe you're always better off adding innings to good pitchers and subtracting them from bad. But what does it mean for fantasy roster planning if it indeed happens, especially if it happens this year when nobody or not, when not everybody might be expecting it? Well, the first thing is that you really don't want the closers on those teams. 
all, all other things being equal. I mean, I don't think Cody Allen is a really good bet this year. Not because he's not a good pitcher. He's a fine pitcher. But if Andrew Miller's going to take seven or eight of his saves, um, he's got to get dropped down pretty far on the list. And that's the first thing I would do. Then, other than that, let's just see how it plays out. And um, the, the guys themselves, you know, the Andrew Millers and the Batantises, um have a lot of value in only leagues. In mixed leagues, I still think that it's kind of hard to... There's, they're less than a starter, and they're less than a reliever. Um, so they're perfect for when you have a, a bad week for starting pitchers, and you can slot them in. But how valuable is that guy over the course of a season? I can't really see taking him before 200 players are gone. So what I would do there is try to look beyond the obvious, the Millers and the Batantises, and try to find a guy who, who could slot in if he's used that way you know, as a reserve pick or something like that, and then um, then you can really get the maximum benefit from them. So do you think that multi-inning necessarily means that a pitcher's going to pitch the 8th and the ninth? Because it could also be, couldn't it, that, the, that Cleveland decides for whatever reason they're going to pitch Miller in the 7th and the 8th or the 6th through the 8th or something like that and leave the so-called save opportunity for uh, the the probably the lesser pitcher in this case in Cody Allen, a fine pitcher, but no Andrew Miller. So is it necessarily the case that multi-inning relievers are going to impinge on the saves totals of the so-called established closers? Not necessarily, but I think the tendency is going to be that way. Um, if he's used, if they bring Miller in in the eighth, um, he'll stay in to pitch the ninth, is what I think, at least a few times during the course of the year, whether it's seven or eight saves or five or six saves, I don't really know. Um, but it's going to be something. So, um, I mean, I've always been one to say, you know, if a pitcher is pitching well, why take him out? Especially if he's only pitched one inning. Because every time you bring in a new pitcher, you take a chance that even if he's good, he just doesn't have it that day. Whereas this guy has already demonstrated that he does have it that day. Um, so I think people are going to, managers are going to be, you know, they're always looking to, reduce and minimize their risk. So I think that's going to come into play. As I say, I, I don't know the exact, you know, what the formula is going to be, if there's a formula at all. That's an interesting comment that you make about the, that the managers are going to ex look at this as a way of reducing their risk. A lot of managers, I think, still consider their biggest risk is that somebody in the newspaper is going to say that they did a dumb decision, and by dumb, they're going to mean unorthodox. And there's, a, there's an awful lot of cultural pressure and media pressure for managers to do the book, to play by the book. And so I wonder if we're going to have to be real cognizant for the next year or two of watching for managers who seem to be a bit more adventuresome, who have the support of the organization in making these kinds of stylistic changes. Clearly, Terry Francona has that support from his general manager. That's one of the reasons they acquired Andrew Miller in the first place. But there are a lot of managers still in, in Major League Baseball who are either just unwilling for, for style reasons. I think of Terry Collins in New York as a very old, old style, old school manager, but also because they're worried about doing something unorthodox and having it not work out and then having the blame fall on them like the proverbial piano out of the window. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that's, we want it. We're looking for those guys for the moment, you know, as a, as a, as a means of um, uh, minimizing our risk. Because after all, the category is saves. It's not intelligent baseball decisions.
Just off the top of your head, can you think of any managers out there besides Terry Francona that you think, hey, that guy might uh, be willing to, to entertain this kind of idea, and I'm going to guess it's mostly younger guys, although... I don't think uh, Joe Madden's particularly adventuresome on the saves front, but he has been pretty adventuresome with a lot of other things, and he's no spring chicken. So is there any manager out there, when you look at all of the major league teams, where you say, this is a guy I can see being willing to embrace this more innings for my better pitchers, which seems so obvious that it's a wonder more of them don't engage in it already. Yeah, I, I think Clint Hurdle is a guy like that. Um, so I would watch the Pirates situation. With their closer being a lefty, I think that makes it even more likely that the saves are going to be spread around on that team. Possibly Joe Girardi, just because of his personnel, because he has Batances and Chapman. But uh, I don't know if I'd bet on that. It's just something I would watch. Yeah, I wouldn't bet on it either. They're paying Chapman an awful lot of money, and there's, of course, going the first time he leaves Chapman uh, out of the game and lets Batances finish and Batances blows the save, then the back page of the New York Post is going to say, dumb Joe decision, and that'll be the end of that, I expect. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, at that, uh, you have to remember, this is the guy who had Batances, Chapman, and Miller and pitched one in the seventh, one in the eighth, one in the ninth as much as he possibly could. Um, which might have been why at the time of the trade that the Yankees had the 15th best bullpen in the major leagues. And to me, that's a disgrace. But I don't get paid by the Yankees anyway. And I think maybe that was, uh, as you said earlier, there's a lot of copycatting in Major League Baseball, and and, uh, the Royals had won a World Series with that here's the guy for the seventh, here's the guy for the eighth, here's Wade Davis in the ninth, and this is going to be our way of doing things and they won and sometimes even if a even if a managerial style is dumb and count and counter to best optimization of your of your talent if you win all of those kind of things are forgiven um well i mean it, it's something to watch for this year but for the moment i've uh, you know i've downgraded cody allen on my list but that's about it as far as what i can see i'm pretty sure is going to happen I've said before, Gene, that I think maybe one of the greatest fantasy baseball seasons ever was Mike Marshall back in 1974, probably even before fantasy baseball, and I'm not sure about the year off the top of my head, but uh, he he pitched out of the bullpen almost 200 innings, maybe more, and, and 208 innings, and he piled up a bunch of wins, he piled up a bunch of saves, and he piled up a bunch of decimals. Is there another, uh, is there another such pitcher in our immediate future? I'm inclined to doubt it. I'd love to see it. But um, I don't think anyone's going to come close to that. I mean, we should be seeing guys pitching 100, 110 innings. Um, and and that's, that'll be the, the interim step. Probably what will happen is that this year we'll see somebody do that. We'll see a, a Miller throw 100 innings or something like that, a little more. And then slowly you'll see the inning totals come up over the next few years, which is going to make it really interesting, and you're going to start seeing pressure in all leagues to to go to saves plus holds rather than just saves. That's how our game is probably going to react to it, if it happens. And in the larger game, in in real baseball, it also could mean another to another fantasy relevant implication which is if teams start realizing hey we could divide up these 1400 innings or or whatever the number is among fewer pitchers because we want our good pitchers pitching more and our bad pitchers pitching less it's not a huge conceptual leap to go 
In fact, what we want is our good pitchers pitching all and our bad pitchers pitching not at all, which means maybe a return to smaller pitching staffs, larger offensive benches, which could relieve a lot of the pressure we see, especially in only leagues, to even find rosterable players towards the end of the draft. Yeah, I mean, is there anything more depressing than watching the backup catcher hit with the bases loaded in the seventh inning of a tie game because there's nobody on the bench to pinch it for him? Um, it's a, sort of a hidden cost of having all these, you know, these uh, twelve and even thirteen man pitching staffs. Um, it's a hidden cost, but it's definitely a cost. And yes, I think that managers, if will do that, I mean, you need to have a guy around to uh, a guy or two to throw junk innings. You know, when you're up eight one or down eight one, and that's but that's a very efficient use of of your lesser pitchers. You make a point of mentioning that when a player has multi-position offensive eligibility, it's really helpful, and of course we all know that, but how do you put a value on that particular attribute when you're deciding how much you want to bid or what round you want to take a guy? Well, I think it's got to add at least a buck to him. Um, a guy like Matt Carpenter, um, who qualifies at uh, first, second, and third, um, that's six roster slots he can fill. I mean, that's enormously valuable. And I think you could go an extra three bucks on a guy like that, especially in only leagues, um, because of that. You know, because then when you go to the free agent wire, you can take the best hitter that's out there. He doesn't have to be the, a shortstop or whatever it is, because um, you can spot that guy in there, and that's definitely an advantage over the course of the season. So I would say, yeah, add one to three dollars depending on the guy and depending on what positions he qualifies at. And Gene, in your analysis of Matt Shoemaker, who's a very interesting fantasy uh, pitcher for this year, you show that his generally mediocre year in 2016 was actually punctuated by some really great starts. But of course, those great starts were offset by some mediocre and poor ones. How do you think we should value a pitcher like this who looks really good some of the time, but nondescript at best over the entire time? Well, it goes back to the original pure quality start theory. Um and that is this, is that when a guy has demonstrated that he can and has dominated major league hitters, that guy is more valuable than the, than the guy with the same numbers who has not demonstrated that. Um, what it means is that the guy has something going for him. And in most cases, it's a guy who has one great pitch. It's not a fastball. And that's true with Shoemaker. He's got a great splitter. Um, when he's getting it over, he's going to dominate. When he's not then he stinks. Um, and I think that's true of all that kind of pitcher, um, unless it's just a young guy who's, whose problem is control. And that's the other thing, you know, you watch for a guy like that. But once you have demonstrated that you can dominate, you've got something to work with, and that guy is worth more, all things equal, for the future. Before we wrap up, let's get some studs and dud hitters and pitchers in both leagues, and let's start with the studs. Who's an American League hitter you really like for 2016? I like Mike Moustakis. I know I'm not alone, but I liked him last year and he got hurt. He looked like he was on the upswing. You know, nice confluence of average and power. Uh, his price is uh, depressed. Um, I think he's still depressed, even though it's creeped up a little bit. Um, he's going to be in, the, in a good lineup. Um, I think he's a really good value this year. 
And Mike Moustakis, I'll be talking about in Master Notes. Uh, Gene, I mentioned earlier that I've been looking at these uh, good outcomes versus bad outcomes as the metrics uh, to be more broadly inclusive of what makes hitters productive and not productive. And Mike Moustakis has very quietly improved his net good but minus bad percentage from uh, minus 28%, which is a little below league average in 2014, all the way up to minus 15%, which sounds bad but is really good considering how often hitters fail at their tasks. And uh, he's like top 10% in baseball last year in those stats. He's hitting the ball hard. He's, he's avoiding strikeouts. He's doing everything that you want in the skills realm and getting the kind of outcomes that lead to really good results, even if they haven't quite turned up so far. Uh, who's a hitter you like in the National League? Similar reasons. Uh, Marcelo Suna. I think he was on the path last year to, to, uh, to make great strides. His fly balls are up. His strikeouts are down. Um, he had talent from day one, um, just couldn't quite get it together. They say he worked really well with Barry Bonds. Um, I'm assuming that the knowledge will carry over even though Bonds is gone. And that, uh, you know, vis-a-vis his, his auction position and his price, I think he's a real good bet to uh, take a nice step forward. Moving to the mound, which American League pitcher do you like as a potential stud? Um, Aaron Sanchez. Um He's not a big strikeout guy, but his innings are going to be up this year, and that's always a, a key thing. So he'll take care of volume, what he lacks in rates. But overall, he was the most effective pitcher in the American League last year, and I expect him to be that again this year, just in more innings. It's an interesting point that you make that uh, we always look at strikeout rates as the be-all and end-all, but if you think about a guy who gets a lot of innings at a lower rate, he ends up being as good or better. guy who pops to my mind in that regard is Rick Porcello last year. Very pedestrian strikeout per nine rate, but you know a really useful strikeout producer because he pitched 220 innings or whatever it was. Right, and Sanchez, by the way, is another example of a, of a ground. He's an extreme ground ball pitcher, and that's why he doesn't get... Um, the strikeouts, it's just the tendency that that, pitcher, that type of pitcher has. And over in the National League, who's a pitcher you think has the potential to be a stud in 2017? Um, I know that Todd Zola mentioned him, but I'm going to jump on the bandwagon and Aaron Nola. And he's an extreme ground bowler who does strike guys out. Um, had really improved control, um, got hurt a little bit. Um, I think he's poised to do something really good. So Gene McCaffrey studs Mike Moustakis of Kansas City and Marcelo Zuna of Miami on the hitting side, Aaron Sanchez and Aaron Nola, the pitchers. And let's continue now, Gene, with your duds. Who's an American League hitter you think is poised for a bad year and a costly year? Uh, Mark Trumbo. High K, fly ball hitter. Um, they play really streaky for long periods of time. He just had a great year. He'll be overpriced this year. And how about a dud National League hitter? Exact same reason Adam Duvall on Cincinnati. And it's not that I think either one of these guys is a bad hitter. I think they're fine in their place. Um, they'll probably be good picks next year, but I don't think this year. When you say they'll be good picks next year on the last year's bum theory? Exactly. They never seem to hit their middle. You know, they're always at their high end or at their low end. And I mean, that's not really true. It only seems to be true, but over the course of a year, this year they'll have the extra slump as opposed to the extra streak. The odds favor that. Moving to the mound, which American League pitcher do you see as a potentially overpriced dud? No, he's on a lot of sleepers lists, but Michael Pineda. Um, 
And the reason is because his fastball gets hammered. Um, his met, some of his metrics look really good, but I just I'm not going to invest in a in a pitcher whose fastball gets hammered, especially in that ballpark. I've read a lot of the touts uh, who really like Michael Pineda this year for a variety of reasons, most of them having to do with he's been unlucky and so forth. But I think I agree with you because uh, we talked about Jared Weaver and he had all those years in a row, or, or uh, Marco Estrada has all these years in a row with an elevated infield fly rate, and we finally have to say, you know what, maybe that's a skill. And when you're looking at Michael Pineda, maybe giving up home runs is whatever the opposite of a skill is, but he seems to prove it year in and year out, and I'm, I'm going to be out on him until I see him be able to control that particular aspect of his game. Right, and you know, he's got good strikeouts and walk numbers, but... There's no reason to walk if you can hit his fastball. And, and that's the reason I think he's got it. So I think if there's a little bit of illusion there in his, in his K-1 strikeout-to-walk numbers. And finally, Gene, how about a dud National League pitcher? And again, same reason, Adam Wainwright. Now, he's capable. He's got his big pitches, his great curveball. But his fastball got hammered last year. He, you know, he cost me big time in tout wars. It was not, nothing personal, Adam, but uh, I just don't trust that I'm not going to invest in a pitcher whose fastball is getting hammered. And if you go to, um, if you go to, I think Fangraphs and go to pitch value and league leaders, you will see Pineda and Adam Wainwright. I think they're the worst and the thirds of the worst in baseball. And so. Uh-uh. Gene McCaffrey's duds in the American League hitter Mark Trumbo, and in the National League Adam Duval. And on the mound, Michael Pineda of the Yankees and Adam Wainwright of the St. Louis Cardinals. Gene, as always, this has been a real treat. How can our listeners stay in touch with Gene McCaffrey? Well, I'll be posting a little bit on wiseguybaseball.com. Um, I'll give out some, uh, since I didn't publish this year, I'll give out some free stuff. I did a massive research project this year on the umpires um, for DFS, and it had really cool and, I think, stunning results like a nine-point draft king difference between the best umpires and the worst umpires for uh, for pitchers. So I'm going to post that. That'll be free. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, I'll post on Facebook and Twitter occasionally. So friend me if you want, and I will um, just give you my thoughts as they go, as they come tripping through this, um, the devil's workshop. And what's your Twitter handle? Wise Guy Gene. And uh, how, what about Facebook? How can people find you there? Just go to Gene McCaffrey and uh, you'll find me. You're the only Gene McCaffrey on Facebook. That sounds weird. I might be. <laughs> yeah. uh, Gene, as I said, thanks a million for helping us out. It's uh, not really a Baseball HQ Radio season until you've been on, and now we can really get the ball rolling as we head towards drafts. And speaking of which, uh, you'll be in New York, I trust, in a couple of weeks? I will. I'm really looking forward to it. And are you uh, in the mix league this year? Yes, I'm in the mixed league auction, and I've got a dynamite strategy, and I'm going to see if these bums let me pull it off. <laughs> I remember once, many years ago, we were talking about uh, Tout Wars. Uh, you and I were both in the mixed league auction at the time, and uh, I don't know what it was that made you say it, but at, at some point you kind of got frustrated or exasperated and said, you know, there's absolutely no rationality to any of this. <laughs> <laughs> There's no rational pricing structure in a mixed league auction, um, and that's what my strategy is aimed to take it, uh, take advantage of. We'll see if it works. I can hardly wait to watch. Uh, Gene, th- thanks a million. We'll talk to you again later on this season, and I'll see you in New York in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's always a pleasure.
Gene McCaffrey writes for his website, wiseguybaseball.com, and he appears regularly on several fantasy baseball shows on SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. When we come back, our Baseball HQ Radio commentaries coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up for success in your drafts with great information across all the major fantasy formats. Get ready for your draft or auction now with news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. And use our valuation tools and cheat sheets so you don't just get ready. You feel ready and confident that you'll dominate your competition at the draft table. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time today and playing time tomorrow, we have analysis of the rotations in Minnesota, the Yankees, and Miami, some roster intrigue in Toronto, and much more news and playing time analysis. In facts and flukes performance validation, analyst Dave Adler looks at Matt Holliday, Justin Verlander, Pablo Sandoval, and more players, and our skills columnists look for 2017 sleepers among batters, starting pitchers, and relievers. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, we have a couple of options for you. The full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. We also have a draft prep subscription option with all the same privileges through April 30th for just $39. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Baseball HQ Radio commentaries. We have Alex Becky's frequent flyers on deck, and leading off, it's our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those valuable at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at the replacement options in Arizona's oft-injured starting outfield. And here to tell you all about it is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. We often obsess over preseason depth charts and what lineups will look like on opening day, but in reality, we know things can look very different as early as a month into the season. That might be the case in Arizona's outfield, which was covered last week by Brian Slack in his NLS Playing Time Tomorrow column. Brian mentioned that Arizona's starting trio of A.J. Pollock, David Peralta, and Yasmani Tomas might be set on the surface, but it's an outfield littered with injury risk. Pollock obviously missed most of 2016 with an elbow, but he also hurt his wrist late last September and was recently pulled from a spring training game with a groin injury. Peralta, meanwhile, hit the DL three separate times in 2016 with wrist and back issues, so it's fair to say that Arizona's starting outfield likely won't remain intact all season. There's a couple of solid options lurking for NL only and deeper mixed league owners. 
First is Chris Owings, who's currently battling for the team's starting shortstop gig, but he's a great bet to get regular playing time in the outfield if there's an injury. Owings' batting average jumped 50 points in 2016 to 277, and he did it with 21 steals. The batting average gains came with a nice jump in Owings' contact rate, as his 273 expected batting average confirmed the growth, and he's got great wheels and runs often. Another option could be Gregor Blanco, who came over from the division rival Giants this offseason. Blanco's long been a utility outfielder, but he's always had a nice combo of good contact, great speed, and a useful ground ball, line drive, batted ball profile. Blanco hit just 224 last season, but we're projecting a sizable rebound at 260. Even further, Arizona's pretty run happy on the base pass, so Blanco could get a shot at 20 plus steals with regular playing time in the outfield. And finally, there's Jeremy Hazelbaker, who brings some power to the equation as he popped 12 homers in just 200 at bats last season with St. Louis. He's probably a platoon bat as he's struggled against lefties so far, but his strong performance in a small sample second half, along with some sneaky speed, make Hazel Baker worth watching, especially in daily leagues or DFS formats. So plan ahead and look at Arizona's outfield for some injury-related profit potential early this season. If A.J. Pollock or David Peralta go down early, look for Chris Owings to rack up plate appearances at multiple positions, while Jeremy Hazelbaker and Gregor Blanco can pitch in some counting stats as well. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and will have his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every Tuesday for the next few weeks. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Houston outfielder Ramon Laureano and Colorado starting pitcher Jeff Hoffman, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Last February, February 12, 2016 to be exact, we suggested that Jonathan VR, our frequent flyer for that week, had numbers trending up in all the right places and could be at excellent value late in drafts. Although we missed out a few picks last season, we hit on a few others, like one of our April frequent flyers, Michael Fulmer, who would go on to become the 2016 AL Rookie of the Year. So what do we have in store for 2017? Let's begin the 2017 season with Houston Astros outfielder Ramon Laureano, who batted 319 with 15 home runs and 43 stolen bases through two levels of the minors in 2016. More importantly, Laureano led the minor leagues with a 428 on base percentage. That's right, 43 steals with a minors leading 428 on base percentage. Now that spells opportunity. But wait, a closer look shows that Houston's former 16th round pick in 2014 produced only a 72% contact rate in 2016 and a 417 batting average on balls in play. That's why Ramon Laureano, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Yet despite a few sides pointing to regression in 2017, Ramon Laureano performed well in the 2016 Arizona Fall League, stealing five bases in only 12 games, and has a chance to make his major league debut in 2017. Watch for him late in drafts, he could be a decent endgame pick. Next, if we assume that attitude determines altitude, 
a great philosophy for our frequent flyer segments. It's easy to see how 24-year-old Colorado Rockies rookie starter Jeff Hoffman has used his work ethic to land in the Mile High City and possibly gain a spot in the Rockies' rotation. Former first-round draft pick of the Toronto Blue Jays, ninth overall in 2014, Jeff Hoffman made his Major League debut on August 20th versus the Chicago Cubs. Although Jeff Hoffman gave up six earned runs as four-inning stint against the Cubs at Coors Field, if we remove that start from his eight total appearances for the Rockies in 2016, Jeff Hoffman's adjusted ERA would have been a respectable 388. Plus, our own Jeremy Deloney ranked Jeff Hoffman number 11 on his list of long-term top-starting pitching prospects is March 5th Miners column on BaseballHQ.com. And BaseballHQ.com's Rob Carroll in the March 10th edition of Playing Time Today suggests that Jeff Hoffman may be a candidate to replace Chad Bettis in the Rockies rotation. In addition, Jeff Hoffman's 50% ground ball rate suggests they could be very successful pitching at Coors Field. But if success is measured by taking chances, as Willie Stargell once said, maybe you should take a chance on both. Ramon Laureano and Jeff Hoffman, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number six and the first Tuesday Tout special edition of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I especially want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Gene McCaffrey, WiseGuyBaseball.com. Gene is a terrific baseball writer, a great guest here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast, and a terrific friend. I also want to thank our regular commentators from Baseball HQ, because it's the people who make it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield, and our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday when our feature guest expert will be Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and RotoWire. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Friday. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.